to either approve, affirm, or not affirm uh, a worship expansion proposal that's been made to the church. It's been sent out in the email the last two weeks to expand our worship ministry with some technology and some equipment and some instrumentation that will help Zach as he grows and expands our music ministry here on Sunday mornings. And so I just want to encourage, if you're a member, uh, plan to be here at 945 next Sunday morning in this room, and it'll, uh, Lord willing, be a brief meeting in which we uh, share with you that proposal, talk in, in more depth, answer any questions you may have, and then vote on that together. Uh, second thing is, in the email this last week, we sent out um, notifying you that for the next two Sundays, next Sunday and the Sunday after, last Sunday of October, 1st of November, uh, we're going to be taking up an anniversary offering. Uh, if you don't remember, uh, if you weren't here with us, or maybe you've slept since then, but this is about the year mark from the launch of our first ever capital campaign. So we launched the Next Five initiative last October. And over the course of these last 12 months, God's been so generous, and you have as well, um, and if you didn't read the email this week, over the last 12 months, we've received a little over $153,000 towards the next five uh, from our congregation. Yeah, let's give God thanks for that. He's been so gracious to us. Uh, so through your sacrificial, whether it be uh, some sporadic or some systematic giving, but through making sacrifices you've given, we've received some gifts from outside the church as well that we didn't anticipate or expect. And the Lord has blessed us. If you saw the sign, if you've driven down Highway 66 between Royce City and Fate, uh, Friday evening I was at home cooking dinner. I got a call from one of the city councilmen here in Fate. And he said, I just drove, I thought he said your son. I thought he said, I just drove by your son on Highway 66. And I was like, no, my son's in his room right now. But he said, your sign on Highway 66. And he said, I just want to give you guys congratulations. I know you've been looking for land for a while. And so we talked for a moment. Um, but it's just a, just, just, that's just the evidences of God's grace, of His providing for us, that He does desire us to be here and make an impact in this community long term. Uh, but as we move into that one year mark, uh, we're going to take up an anniversary offering next Sunday and the Sunday after. Just a cash offering. We're not going to pass a plate or a bucket or a basket. There's going to be some additional boxes in the back of the room that you can leave a cash, cash or check-in next weekend. Also, if this is, you weren't with us whenever we launched this initiative last year, then there's going to be some pledge cards next weekend as well. If you would be willing to say, hey, for the next two years, we're going to be in on this together. Because if you don't know, let me in, inform you of how this works. When you go to set out in construction, the lender not only looks at what you have in the bank, but also what you've, your, your, the congregation has pledged to come in. And so if we have higher totals of pledges that continue to come in, say for the next two years, we, we didn't get it on the first year, but we'll get it on the next two, uh, then that gives us more capital with the bank as, and the lender as we continue to move forward toward construction. So just something for you to consider and pray about as a family over this next week. How could God lead you to participate in that? Maybe it's in a one-time offering that you make in this, this cash offering that we receive, or maybe it's a two-year commitment to be a part of this endeavor with us and keep pushing toward the direction that God has has called us to go. So I just wanted to put those two things on your radar this morning. If you get a Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. It's where we're going to be this morning. Genesis 3. We'll continue in this series called Foundations. Uh, last week we said as we looked at Genesis 3, 1 to 7, we said that every worldview, every lens through which we view the world has to answer the question, why is the world the way that it is? If God created it good, why do I see so much that is messed up around me? 
And so we said that the Bible accounts for the way that the world is with regards to uh, all the evil and all the pain, all the sorrow, sadness, suffering, and sickness with one word answer. It's called sin. Sin has corrupted God's good creation. And last week we sought to understand the essence or nature of sin. What is it? And we said that it's building an identity apart from God. But this week, what I want us to consider is the pattern of sin that shows up in that very same passage. And so we're going to read Genesis 3, 1 to 7 together and take a look at it from a little different angle this morning. So beginning in verse 1, we'll read down through verse 7 together. If you don't have it in front of you, it'll be on the screen behind me as I read it for our hearing. Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1, Moses writes, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but, we may, but, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is God's word. Listen, church, in the field of biology, what starts small does not stay small. Okay? You see this both in plant life and in human life. In my front yard right now, uh, as we move into the fall season, I have a bunch of acorns falling from the live oak tree that was planted in my front yard by the builder some 10, 11 years ago. And those little small acorns, if given the right environment and circumstances, if they were to lodge themselves in the soil, they put up a little sprig. And that little sprig from that little small acorn can grow into a mighty oak tree, given the time that it needs, because what starts small does not stay small. It's also true in human life. I remember, like I took my... (laughs) took my son to his well child visit a couple of weeks ago and as we were sitting in the room waiting for the doctor I looked over on the table next to the 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 bench where they sit to do the examination and on that table was sitting one of those little small infant scales you guys know what I'm talking about in the doctor's office right where they put the babies whenever they're weighing them because they can't stand up on the scale like everyone else right and so I looked at that scale and I said to my son I said I know you don't remember this but I remember coming in here in this very same doctor's office with this very same doctor and that you being so small that they laid you on that scale in order to ascertain your weight and he of course like every teenager, he's like, yeah, right? And so, so we're, we're that, that, that's just how they respond, right? I'm learning to deal with it. But um, I said, you were that small. And, and when they measured his height at the doctor's office, he's like five, nine and a half. I'm 5'11". And I bought him a size 12 shoe when he started his freshman year of high school, which was just a few months ago. So I know he's going to outgrow me, okay? That day is coming when I will be looking at him because what starts small doesn't stay small. Right? There is a, a movement and a direction in biological life that's healthy. 
that's not only true in natural, biological life, but I want you to tell you something that's also true spiritually as well. But what starts small does not stay small. Right? In James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15, listen to what we read. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James sets forth a pattern for sin in James chapter 1 in those several verses. And he says, what starts small as a desire in the heart that when it conceives, it gives birth to something that when it fully grows, brings forth death. Because spiritually, what starts small doesn't stay small. And that pattern that James outlines in James chapter 1 is first put on display in Genesis chapter 3. See, the devil hijacks a serpent and speaks to the woman in the garden promising that if they were to eat of the one tree that God had put out of bounds, then they would be like God. They could have an identity apart from God. They wouldn't be dependent upon God to know what is right and what is wrong. In the garden, there was this foreign, external word coming to the woman to tempt her. However, in verse 6, we're told that the choice to eat the fruit was hers and hers alone. Satan did not force feed her the fruit. He may have played the airplane game. You know what I'm saying? Right? Right? Here comes the green beans. Right? He may have tempted and enticed her in that manner, but rather the choice that she made was hers alone. She took, she ate, then she gave because she saw, we're told in the text, that it was tasty, that it was pretty, and most importantly, it was desired to make one wise. And that desire, it conceived, it gave birth to sin, the taking and the eating of the fruit, and it brought forth death. Not only for her and for, her, for the man that's with her, but ultimately for the entire human race. This is how sin works. It's a pattern. It is how it worked in the garden, and it is how it works in our lives. So, this morning, what I want us to look at in Genesis 1-3 to together is not the essence of sin. We saw that last week, but I want us to see this pattern of sin. And what produces that pattern, and then how do we short-circuit it in our lives? Okay? What produces it, how do we cut it off? So first, how, what produces it? There's two things I believe we see in this text that help give rise to this pattern of sin in our lives. And the first one is this, is that sin promises life, but it delivers death. It promises life, but it delivers death. In verses 4 to 5, the serpent says to the woman, he contradicts the word that God had given them in Genesis chapter 2 and he says you will not surely die if you take and eat for God knows that whenever you eat of it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil we said last week that what the tempter is doing is aiming to convince the woman that she can have an identity apart from God and the tempter in to do so he's promising her fullness of life fullness of life he says when you eat you will become fully alive fully aware 
He says, right now you're living in a shell of an existence. Right now your eyes are closed, but they can be opened. Right now you are dependent, but you can be independent. Right now you are under God's authority, but you can be in authority. Right now you are held down, held back, and held in place. But you can take your own place in creation and be like God. He says, essentially, don't you want to see what life is really all about? Don't you want to see what's possible when you break all the restraints of God's hold over your life? Don't you want to experience all that this world has to offer? He's promising life something more than what she's currently experiencing. The tempter is promising full and abundant life to the woman, but I want you to notice what happens as soon as both the man and the woman take of the fruit and eat. So the woman takes first. And the man was with her. Now, I've always seen that in the text. right? The man's there. He's silent in the process. But I've never seen this before preparing for this message and reading a commentary that pointed it out to me. The woman is in dialogue with the serpent. Right? And the serpent, with the serpent, and sees the promise of the fruit, is enticed by her desire and falls into sin. That's the pattern. That shows up there. However, the man who was with her, remember, he takes second. Secondarily to the woman. But So why do you think he took and ate? And this commentator suggests that the text says nothing about the man in interacting with the serpent. Nothing about the man speaking with the serpent. Nothing about the man dialoguing with the serpent or being enticed. But if you remember back to 2.17, when God says, In that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Where here is the woman that God had given to the man as a gift. Bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, co-equal with him, created in the image of God. And yet she has taken, and, I'm sure, and the commentator suggests, it's not in the text, but I believe it's a reasonable suggestion that he's standing there with her, sees her eat, and she doesn't fall out from a heart attack or an aneurysm. And so he says, well, it must be safe. And so he takes and he eats as well. And yet neither one of them die in that moment. So what's the deal? God said they would die, but they didn't die. But there was a death that day, church. There was a death that day. It was the death of innocence. Look again at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, the tempter had promised, right, that their eyes would be opened and they would be like God. They would have all the wisdom that God has, all the knowledge that God has. Their eyes would be opened. And when they eat, their eyes are opened. But they do not like what they see. Because what the tempter promised, sin promised life, but delivered death. It promised honor, but it delivered shame. Because their eyes were opened. And rather than being attracted to what they saw, they were repelled by it in their shame and felt like they needed to do something to conceal and cover it. But there's another thing to consider here, that they, the fact that they don't fall dead in that moment. And that's this, that the delayed consequences, church, are still consequences. Look at the end of chapter 3. 
At the end of chapter 3, God's going to banish our first parents from the garden. He will post angels there with swords that are aflame at the entrance to keep the man and the woman from returning to take hold of the tree of life. That means at some point in the future, the man and the woman, they will die. They will die. They are cut off from the source of life. And in Genesis 5.5, we see that Adam, though he lived to be 930 years old, Some of you are like, Lord, take me before then, okay? 930 years old, and yet he died. Now the Bible is silent on when Eve, as she would be called, died. But since there's no ancient woman roaming around the the Near East somewhere, thousands of years old, at some point she died. Though they didn't experience physical death that day, on account of their sin, they were cut off from the source of life, and eventually they would have an expiration date. Delayed consequences are still consequences. There was a death of innocence in that moment as they were repelled in shame, and there was eventual physical death that entered into the world that claimed their life. That's how sin works, church. It's the pattern of it. It's set forth for us. It not only worked that way thousands of years ago, but it works that way today as well. Right? In the moment, in the moment, if you're a Christian in the room who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, in the moment that you commit sin, there is the experience of shame. What you thought was going to be fullness of life, you experience as a cut of death in your soul. And whether you experience temporal consequences to it now, in that immediate moment, those of you who have lived a minute, you know that delayed consequences are still consequences. So let me speak for a moment to the students who are in this room, the young people who are here. There's a reason why in the book of Ecclesiastes, the author writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. In other words, the author of Ecclesiastes is saying this, you can do what you want with your life in the days of your youth, but one day you will have to give an account to God for the choices that you have made, for the decisions that you have made. God will bring you into judgment for that. You have to give an account. Or in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. The author of Ecclesiastes says, In your youth, make God-honoring choices. Remember that you are a creature. All these things we've been talking about. You are a creature. He is your Creator. You are accountable to Him. You are under His authority. Submit yourselves to Him. Walk with Him. Honor Him. So that whenever God calls you into account, there is a place for you to say, I have remembered you. I remembered you whenever I was young. I walked with you the days of my life. Not in perfection. And in that day, 
You will still have to claim the blood of Jesus to cover your sin. But in that day, you'll be able to claim the blood of Jesus to cover your sin because you remembered your Creator. So listen, though you don't experience consequences from your disrespect today in the home, well, maybe you do. (laughs) Maybe the phone gets taken away, right? Maybe the, the, the keys get taken away. A lot of our teams don't drive yet, but that's coming, all right? Maybe the keys get taken away. All right, maybe going places with friends and privileges that we call them in our house, right? They, they are not uh, your inherited rights. They are privileges that you enjoy as you live in our home. Those privileges get stripped away, right? Maybe you do experience consequences now, but I want to tell you something. If you continue in those patterns of disrespect and defiance that got privileges taken away in the home, they will create patterns in your life that will ultimately end up losing you a job one day. Because delayed consequences of patterns that build up over time. Separating you from something that you love or even someone that you love. See, sin promises life, but it always delivers death. Always. Without exception. Second truth in this text I think that we see that produces that pattern of sins that not only does sin promise life and deliver death but it also makes God's word subject to our judgment makes God's word subject to our judgment if you look closely at the interaction between the snake and the woman I want you to notice a couple of things first notice the way the snake approaches the woman questioning God's word and God's character as the serpent comes with a subtle intentional but intentional question and says did God actually say he actually utter these words you shall not eat of any tree in the garden now the serpent distorts the command of God from Genesis chapter 2 but he casts seeds of doubt into the woman's mind as to the goodness of God and to the goodness of God's word and he shows the seeds of doubt as to God's character when he says listen for God knows It's like God knows something that he's keeping back from you. He paints a picture of a God who's holding out on humanity. And holding humanity back from something good that they ought not be able to enjoy. So the serpent distorts God's word and questions and undermines the woman's places doubts to undermine the goodness of God's word in the woman's mind. But second, notice the way the woman responds by revising God's word in three distinct ways. First, she diminishes God's word when she responds this way. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. In doing so, listen, she down. We may eat of the trees. But God said, you may eat of every tree in the garden. Except this one. And she says, yeah, we can eat of the trees. Listen, this is typical of you and I as well. Sin causes us to be this, to, to miss the permissive side of God's word, to see the restrictive side of God's word. We blow things out of proportion so often, don't we? Right? I will probably have to apologize to my kids one day for them constantly showing up as illustrations, right? But I can remember when they were, they were young. I remember when they were young. 
And they, like they'd have a friend over at the house, and they would do something that was either disobedient or disrespectful. And we say, okay, now it's time for your, your, your friend to go home because you've not been able to listen and respond in appropriate ways to mommy and daddy. And they, they would ultimately respond by saying something like, right? So if I would say that, they would run to Karen and say, Teddy said our friend could never come over again, right? It would be that kind of response, okay? But, because we have a tendency to just escalate things, right? Or if your boss calls you into the office and says, hey, we need to address something here. We need to talk about something and get, get on the same page here because we see some patterns of performance in, every, in, in, in your work that we need to address and correct and, and make account for. And then you come out of the office, and, and so you put together a plan, and they're helping you, make, like providing resources for you. You come out of the office, and you say to your coworker, that old hag in there, right, called me in and stripped me down and gave me what for, and, right? Like, that's just what we tend to do as people. Because sin inevitably causes us to downplay God's provision and to dismiss His generosity. Second, she added to God's word when she says, neither shall you touch it. It's like the woman envisions the trees, this big glowing bug zapper. You remember those things? You used to hang out on the porch, right? And the bugs would fly into it and be like, bzz, bzz. Right? In South Louisiana, during the summer, like, if you had one of those, you didn't hear anything else. Because there's constantly mosquitoes flying into the bug zapper. Right? And this is typical, listen, of, 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 this is what she envisioned the tree as. Of all who descend from our first parents, when you give a cor- corrective word, right? you re- or receive a corrective word, right? um, we, 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 again, we take it to the extreme. She adds to it, but third, listen, she softens God's word when she replies, lest you die. Lest you die. She, doesn't, she leaves out, you will surely die. God had said, you will surely die. And the woman says, yeah, lest, lest you die. The certainty of death and judgment gets removed from the equation. And listen, this is one of the first doctrines to be removed from the equation in the modern mind. To dismiss the notion that God will judge, that there will be, there will be death. So sin has this pattern, this tendency to make God's word subject to our judgment. And there is no shortage of ways in which the human hearts have made God's word subject to our judgments even today. I want you to consider a few examples. We said sin last week is building an identity apart from God. Right? That's the essence of sin. But if you build your life identity apart from God and you build your life on one of these four things, let me give them to you this morning. You build your life on human approval. Right? There are some people who are building their lives on what other people think of them. Okay? Other people's opinions of them. And that dictates how they interact with others. It dictates the choices that they make. It dictates the homes that they buy. It dictates the cars that they drive. It dictates the clothes that they wear. It dictates the name brand on the shoes, right, that they purchase from the store. It dictates every decision that they make because they're building their identity on what other people think about them. If you build your identity upon human approval and build your life on that foundation, then God's word becomes subject to other people's opinions about it and about you if you were to walk in obedience to it. And for those who struggle with popularity and inclusion, right? 
there's a good chance that maybe you're building your life upon human approval. You, you just want to fit in. And listen, many of us go, I struggled with that in high school, but that, I've outgrown that. I'm more mature than that now. Listen, I want to tell you, that doesn't die whenever you walk across the stage and receive your diploma. Okay? It doesn't. That lives and breathes and continues even into your 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, unless you recognize it and say, I'm not going to build on that platform any longer. It makes God's word subject to what other people think about it. Second, if you build an identity apart from God and build your life on temporary pleasure, what feels good in the moment will matter more to you than what God's word says. If the foundation of your life is what feels good in that moment, what makes you comfortable in that moment, then what feels good temporarily will matter more to you than what God has said eternally. Third, if you build an apart from God and build your life on having control, this is a biggie, okay? Having control. Then when the immediate, listen, when the immediate results of obedience to God's word are uncertain. You don't know which way it's going to go, right? I can walk in obedience. I'm not sure how things are going to turn out. Listen, then, as a, sorry, I lost my place. You don't know what's going to happen if you obey. Then maintaining control in the moment will take precedence over obedience to God. Because you say, if I take control, if I have control of my life, then I can manipulate my decisions and choices to see the outcomes. I know how things are going to end if I go this way. I'm not sure how things are going to end if I go this way and I obey God because I'm putting myself at risk. So I'm not sure if I want to take that step of obedience. If control is the platform, the foundation that you're building, that I want to retain it then when things are uncertain about how it will turn out, if you were to walk in obedience, then inevitably you will choose to disobey. Fourth, if you're building an identity apart from God and build your life on who you feel yourself to be rather than on who God has made you and said that you are, then how you feel about yourself will override what God has revealed in both nature and in Scripture. Both in natural revelation and in special revelation. Listen, all of this, all of this has very practical implications for your life when you wake up tomorrow morning. About the decisions that you will make. About what you will use your body for about whether or not you will give and serve. Because if I give too much and I serve too much, I'm not sure what the outcome that's going to be. Will God continue to provide for me? I don't know. I have some uncertainty. Will He return everything that I've given out? Will I be blessed for it? Or will people uh, speak about me behind my back, curse me behind my back? Will they just take from me and take from me and take from me and never give? Right? I'm uncertain. What's gonna... So all of this has very practical implications. For our lives. The question is. Will sin. Convince you. That God's word. Is subject to your judgment. Or will you. Be subject to God's word. 
That's how sin produces that pattern in our lives. It promises us life, it delivers death, and it tells you that God's word ought to be subject to your judgments about it. So how do we short-circuit this pattern? Let me give you just a couple of things this morning, and then we'll be done. First, because I don't want to just leave you there, like, go, right? First, celebrate the power of sin being broken. See, I want to tell you something, church. The good news of the gospel says this. That while that pattern existed in the garden and continues to exist today, that for those who are in Christ, that the power of sin over their lives has been shattered like a plate, a ceramic plate that has fallen off the shelf, the very top shelf of the kitchen and hit the ceramic tile floor or the granite countertop. What is that thing going to do? It's going to shatter into a billion pieces. And that sin, the power of it, has been shattered by Christ. The power of sin is broken through the one who knew no sin but became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is arguing about this very thing. Listen to what he says in Romans 6, 5 to 10. He says, for if we have become united with him, with who? With Jesus, in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, in bondage to sin, sin having a power and authority over us and we're being obligated to obey. Verse 7, for he who has died from, has been, is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And if our life indeed is hidden with God in Christ, then the same death that Jesus died to sin on the cross, you and I have died in our conversion and through our baptism, publicly identifying with Jesus, saying, I belong to Him. I'm following Him. I'm walking in His footsteps. Died to the old way of life. My old self has been crucified, as Paul says. And now I've been raised with Christ to live this new life. And if sin no longer has mastery over Jesus because of His death and resurrection, then our Ah, sin no longer has mastery over you if you've died and been raised with Christ. It's not the, the cross is not just, and resurrection is not just about forgiveness. Though it is, it's also about power. Power to live a godly life and say no to sin. So you have to learn, church, if you're going to celebrate this, to preach the gospel to yourself. Now, you can do that in the mirror. Okay, or you can do it without a mirror. Either one. You say to yourself, because of Jesus, I'm no longer obligated to say yes to sin. 
Sin no longer has sway in my life. I'm dead to sin, alive to Christ. I don't have to listen to the voice of the tempter any longer whenever he whispers in my ear. Did God actually say, God's holding something back from you. Don't you want to experience the fullness of life? Don't you want to taste everything this world has to offer? Whenever I hear that voice whispering in my ear, I can tell it to shut up. Be silenced. I don't have to listen to you any longer. We preach the gospel to ourselves. We sing about the curse of sin. It's death losing its grip on our lives. One of my favorite modern hymns that has been written is in Christ Alone by the Gettys. And there's a lyric in that song that says, as, And as he stands, who? Jesus. As he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. It no longer has the ability to squeeze me into its mold. But I'm now being conformed to the image of Christ and Christ alone. Because it's lost its grip. It can't control me any longer. That's good news. Celebrate the power of sin being broken. Second, yield to God's word. Because sin's been broken. That power has been broken in your life. Yield to God's word. I remember taking driver's education in high school. Before they had it online. Okay? So sitting in a classroom with a book of paper. Reading. Being instructed. Alright? And I remember in that book they had all sorts of traffic signs. Right? You had stop signs. And you had, uh, you had you know, lane merger signs, speed limit signs, all those things. And then you had the yield sign, that little upside down triangle with the red and white and the word yield written across. And what I was taught in driver's ed okay, is applicable to this conversation. Because what I was taught in driver's ed is that whenever you approach a yield sign, you have to look to see if there's anyone else coming because they don't have a yield sign. If you have a yield sign, they don't because they should have the right of way in order to merge into that lane of traffic. So if someone is coming, then you slow down, if necessary, stop to yield the right of way to those individuals who are coming to merge into that lane. Right? So you pull back and say to someone else, you go ahead, I'll follow you. And that's exactly what we must learn to do with God's Word. Is to yield to it. So that when we come into... When we interact with God's Word and we see God's Word with an explicit, clear direction or command, we say, you know what? I'm going to pull along behind it. I'm going to submit myself to it. I'm going to yield to it in my life. So I'm not going to exert my will. and say, I'm going to have things my way. But rather, I'm going to say, I'm going to follow God, submit to Him, have things His way. Because sin no longer has a grip on me. I can do that. This is exactly what Jesus does. He yields the right of way every single time to the word and will of His Father. You see it in some of His miracles. Whenever they're pressing Him at the wedding and He says, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. I can't do anything too extravagant here because it's not time for my glory. The Father has said, my time has not come. Eventually he turns the water into wine, which is the best wine they ever tasted. Okay? But he yields to the Father's will in that moment. You see it not only in his miracles, but you see it in his refusal to allow the people to make him king. Right? They want somebody who's going to overthrow the Romans. He says, that's not the kind of Messiah I've come to be. He yields 
You see it in his resisting of the temptation in the wilderness. And you see it perhaps most vividly in his time in the garden. As he prays, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Constantly saying, Father, you take the right of way. 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 I will yield to you and follow your will and your word. Third, and finally, if you're going to yield to God's word, you've got to plant it in your heart. You've got to plant it in your heart. In Psalm 119 We read these words, verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to his word, the psalmist says. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I've planted the seeds of your word in my heart, the very center of my life, right? The cockpit for all of my decisions, that's where I've planted that, planted good seed in that heart that is now free from the power of sin. It, 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 if you plant good seed in a heart that is free from the power of sin, it will grow because what you've done now is you've given the Holy Spirit the raw material that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit just makes stuff up out of thin air. He takes the Word of God and He presses it further into the life of the people of God so they begin to bear the fruit of God in their lives. So you've given, you've, you've planted that word in your heart so the Holy Spirit can press that. The Holy Spirit can bring it to mind whenever you are tempted or enticed by your fleshly desires. So that you can yield to it. And as you do, right, your life can become a flourishing garden rather than an arid wasteland. So plant it there. Listen, do this personally. Do it privately as you meditate and memorize Scripture. Do it with your families. Perhaps even around the dinner table. It was a rhythm that we had established at one time that I have not been good. I'll just confess that to you this morning. I have not been good about continuing in. But do it as a family. Do it as a life group. Right? What if you memorized together as a life group, a verse a month or a passage a month, what might God would do, do with that over the course of a year, two years, three years, four years time? Do it with friends. Bring other people into this process with you of memorizing, meditating upon God's word, planting those seeds in your heart so they begin to bear fruit in your life. To short circuit that pattern of being enticed by the promise of life that will only bring death and of being told that you can take God's word and you can make it subject to your own judgment. You can say to sin, be silenced because the power has been broken if you are in Christ. You can look at sin and say, I'm going to yield, look at God's word and say, I'm going to yield to God's word and follow along after him. As you plant those seeds in a heart that is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If that's not you this morning, if that's not you this morning, you've never placed your confidence, your faith, your trust in Jesus to save you from the penalty of sin, which is indeed death. Right? One out of every one person's born dies. 
Except Enoch, right? That's another story in and of itself. But one out of every one person born today dies. And we will all face and have to give an account to God one day. So is the account that you give, will it be, well, God, I did what was reasonable in my mind. Or will it be, your son broke the power of sin, forgave me of all my transgressions, and I sought to honor you in my decisions. Which will it be? What starts small does not stay small. It's true of sin, but I want to tell you it's also true of righteousness. Because the power of sin has been broken. Let us walk in righteousness, church. Let's pray together. Father, today, we come to thank you for those who are in Christ with hearts full of gratitude. For the way that you worked in your Son. To bring an end to the power that sin has over us. That it's his, his, sin's grimy fingers have been pried from our lives if we're in Christ. Because we've died to our old selves. Crucified and raised in Christ to be free. Help us to live in that freedom. To say no to the voice of the tempter. To short-circuit the pattern of sin by celebrating the work of Jesus. And rather than making sin, or your word subject to our own judgments, that we would yield to your word. And that we would plant it in our hearts. As we look back on what took place in the garden with our first parents, we see both the immediate and the delayed consequences. Help us to be mindful that sin still works that way today. If there's anyone this morning, Father, who has never had the power of sin broken, faith in Christ. I pray today would be their day. I pray you'd be gracious and mighty to save. I know that you are. I pray you show yourself to be in their lives. For those who have, help us to walk in righteousness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to invite you to stand this morning. We're going to see together celebrating fact that we have a strong and mighty plea before the Father. He's interceding for us. He's broken the curse and power of sin. So do you celebrate the work of Jesus this morning as the band leads us in song?